the customer voice is needed by future customers, but current customers as well. So we're getting more and more requests from current customers to speak to their peers and not just in a digital forum, but meeting and getting to know each other to the point where we as the vendor can be facilitator of those conversations. It's, it really benefits us um, and it benefits the customers and they feel more connected to a community as a result and they feel a bit more connected to the product. Alrighty, folks, welcome to the State of Customer Storytelling podcast, the show that is all about helping you as a B2B marketing leader get the download on the most current practices and strategies related to customer marketing and customer storytelling. The State of Customer Storytelling podcast is brought to you by Testimonial Hero. Testimonial Hero helps over 300 B2B software companies easily create stunning customer video content that closes deals faster. You can view examples and find out more at testimonialhero.com. My guest today is James Lustenotter, Senior Customer Advocacy Manager at PlanView. James, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sam, good to be here. To kick things off, um, let's start just at a high level. Talk to me a little bit more about, you know, why does customer advocacy you know, matter at the end of the day? Why is it more important than ever? Yeah, um, I think the selfish answer is because it's my job. But uh, beyond that, I think the customer voice is crucial to the sales cycle, certainly in software and uh, where where my career has settled in and been for the past decade or so. I think that the, the customer voice is needed um, by future customers, but current customers as well. So we're getting more and more requests from current customers to speak to their peers and not just in a digital forum, but meeting and, and getting to know each other and asking them for best practices. So to the point where we as the vendor can be this facilitator of those conversations, it's, it really benefits us um, and it benefits the customers and they feel more connected to a community as a result and they feel a bit more connected to the product. Uh, and hopefully they come away with some ideas on how to use the product that they wouldn't otherwise. And I don't think it's because they don't trust us. I think it's it's just that the customers, the other customers that they want to speak with, really have their hands in the product on a day-to-day -day basis in ways that we do not uh, as the vendor who are building it. So yeah, maybe this has been a shift that, that you're seeing as well in the industry that the, the vendor needs to kind of step aside as the expert and, and start positioning their customers as the experts and finding ways to leverage those customer voices in that way. 100%. And I, yeah, I agree. Like it's, it's less about like this... To me, you know, it's also like less about like, oh, like they don't trust us. It's more about it just like functionally hearing from, you know, customers and peers can, it's just more helpful. You know what I mean? It's just, it's often, you know, a more helpful, uh, more relevant, and it's certainly different. It certainly cuts through the noise, which, you know, from a, a marketing perspective, I think is so critical because it's getting noisier, noisier than ever, you know, in general out there. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And maybe my perspective too, me thinking about this a bit more is coming from the customer success side of things, which I don't, I, I technically sit on the marketing team, but my title isn't customer marketing, it's customer advocacy. And there's a subtle difference there. It very much exists and it's starting to become clearer. Um, the customer advocacy, I think, has that straddles the line between customer success and you know, retention and customer customer marketing for sales and new sales and creating content, right? So um, 
if you were to ask that to a straight customer marketer, why does customer advocacy matter? You might get a very different response. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that's something that I've been um, thinking about a lot lately because there's a different, you know, I think customer advocacy, the, 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 the title in uh, has a more consistent meaning where, where in some companies, customer marketing can mean customer advocacy, but it can, you know, it can also mean, you know, we're actually just marketing to our existing customer base, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that, but that's definitely something that, that I've noticed. And uh, I don't know if, if it will kind of get this kind of unifying terminology that everyone can agree or like, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just a kind of interesting observation. Yeah, I think if if you're not in the business, then you don't think about that subtle differences. But um, if you are in the business, you do and you are aware of it. I think it's our job to make sure that others, um, leaders in marketing, leaders in CS understand the subtle difference and and wrap that into their strategy for what they need from us as a team. And so that they if they do understand that, they can work with us more effectively. Right. So just getting the word out there um, might be preaching to the choir to your audience here a little bit. But, uh, you know, if you're not thinking about this kind of thing, then I think it behooves you to do so. And I know that you mentioned it in the in the pre-show, just, you know, something that, you know, you are uh, passionate about is really, you know, the, capturing the customer's authentic voice. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, what's the, you know, h- how do you think about, you know, customer voice in, in general versus like authentic voice in the value of when you're able to actually tap into that authentic voice? Yeah, like, I like that you brought up the value I think that almost answers the question or provides a good example of my answer. You know, it's as an audience member, you know, when someone, when you're watching a movie, you know, when someone's a bad actor, you can tell that they're acting. You, if you don't notice that they're acting, they're a great actor. You know, if you, if you feel like they're the person, then, then the actor's doing a good job, right? So when you're building this piece of content, video content, you want to capture that authentic voice. You want to make sure that the customer's putting themselves out there as who they truly are, because the audience is going to relate to them so much better. If, if the audience feels that they're reading, your subject is reading from a script, your customer is just canned answers. It's not going to be as effective. I don't have any data to back that up. I think it's just kind of self-evident, right? So when we're, if we're the directors of this movie uh, to keep the analogy going, then you want to make sure that your customer feels at ease in front of the camera. Not everybody who is a customer product expert has done this before. And many times you'll find that they haven't, and that's okay. You just need to coach them a little bit. And uh, we can talk about best practices and preparing for a video interview um, as well, if you'd like, but making them feel at ease initially, super important. Uh, Asking them, I always like to start with a question like, what's your favorite part of the product? What's your favorite feature? What gets you the most excited? It's a very different way of saying, well, what are the success metrics? that you're seeing by using our product, right? So when you get them talking about what they know and love in the product, the, the authentic voice comes out. They don't, they're not scripted. This is truly what they feel and they believe. They don't need to read from a paper and it comes right out from their heart into the camera. So, and I think the result is much better as uh, by doing it that way. So think about phrasing your questions that way, make the customer feel at ease, get to know them a little bit better. Hopefully you already do. Um, but if you're meeting them for the first time that day, you know, make sure that you you take some time before the interview goes to uh, have a chat, even just about their kids. And do they have a good trip out here to the conference where you're meeting them, whatever it might be. Um, make sure they know who you are and, and try to connect to them on a personal level. I think it'll make the interview that much smoother for you. So 
such a good point. And it's it's remarkable how inauthentic it is when you try to force someone down a script and how much harder it is, like, you know, uh, versus how easy it is if you just, like you said, you know, do your prep work and have a have an honest, you know, conversation. Uh, I want to ask you about, you know, the best practices in preparing for a video interview, but just to kind of, you know, add a little more context there before, tell us a little bit more, like, what's your background? I know you have quite a bit, I think, in uh, creating, you know, customer videos, you know, with your company, other firms, other, you know, vendors and such. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, Mm -hmm. what's your experience? Um, Paint the picture. Like what's your experience uh, with, you know, creating uh, customer videos, video testimonials, uh, et cetera. Yeah. It, um, it did start in software when it comes to video content. And it was very much that, okay, we're going to go on site to the the customer's office. We're going to film some B-roll. We have half a day set up and, oh, great. They have a video studio that we can leverage. Fantastic. You know, so and, and we came away with some great content that we boiled down to a three minute, uh, very heavily produced, very clean and, and smooth video about that customer's experience with our software. In watching my, my boss at the time kind of set all this up and I was kind of along for the ride. I did that a few times and then eventually I, I gained the trust to be the one to do that. Um, we also, in order to save a, a lot of time and money, we would make sure that we had a video studio set up at our customer conferences that we would host every year. And this is back when I worked for Aptis in the quotes cash space. And so we could do 10 interviews or 20 interviews in a single day that way, and just had that studio up and running throughout the conference and made sure to invite people beforehand to schedule them beforehand. And there's a lot of work that goes into that, but it could save you a lot of time. You do lose and, and money too. Um, you do lose the B-roll of the, the customer's offices, um, but there's a kind of a branding that you can, uh, the event was called Accelerate. So you could put up a lot of Accelerate branding around that customer. And uh, it's got that flavor and that that brand to it, which is really cool. And then since uh, since then, working with Clarison and now PlanView, uh, we've definitely seen a shift in that we need shorter pieces of content um, and maybe even like less produced pieces of content. Now, I know that's completely up to for debate. And there were reasons why we decided that we wanted something a bit more raw, if you will, uh, and like straight from my living room to yours, much like we are doing right now. And I think COVID has so much to do with that. But I also think that there's a this idea of a video reference, right, where you don't necessarily need to set up a reference call for every prospect every time. If you can get the right questions asked and capture those on video and share them at the right part and in the right way in the sales cycle, it it kind of checks that box. And it it's a, a ready-made piece of content that you can reuse over and over and over again, right? If you Again, if you set it up properly. So there were some reasons why we chose to kind of switch from that, that three minute production to shorter micro content, I think is the word that you used. And I love that term and I'm going to start to use it. And I think social media too. We, we made a big push in social media. We still have a, a passion for that here at PlanView. And I'm, I'm trying to think about more and more ways in which we can provide that to the social media managers. I love everything you said there. I want to double click on the, a couple of things. Um, at the conference, just for folks listening, was that a conference you you and your your company put on was that more like your company conference or was that like an industry event yeah it was our customer conference so we had got some it. prospects but it was every year we got a bunch of customers together and yeah we had two three thousand people and accelerated aptus ran for six years or so and oddly enough uh, plan view also has their annual customer conference called accelerate so uh it's just a great word for an event 
and we had our first one last year. Um, this, although for Planview, they rebranded their Horizons event, which has been running for 22 years or so. So a very well-established event. Um, we just changed the name on it. And uh, yeah, so I think um, you could do what I've described with video at Dreamforce, for example, or, or industry conferences like that. And we did do that uh, at Aptus. We booked a hotel room and that was our video studio. Uh, we just had it all week and brought customers up to the 32nd floor in San Francisco to uh, uh, Market Square to get those videos captured. So you can be very creative in, in how you capture that. And it's it's so rare to have so many people all together in one place. So to try to leverage and maximize that is what uh, the goal was there. And it worked pretty good, worked pretty well. That's awesome. And um, in terms of, re- you know, uh, right now we're recording this in early 2021. Um, I'm curious, do you think that, you know, as we move into maybe more hybrid events or, you know, hopefully, you know, in person Mm -hmm. again, but is there still that sort of dynamic where if you're having an event, you can, maybe it's still a good time to ask someone for a a remote testimonial and capture it virtually and use the Mm -hmm. event as like a trigger, Um, even though, you know, obviously you could do it at any time. I guess I'm curious for folks who are doing, is there any sort of tips or, you know, perspective you can share for folks who love this idea, but maybe aren't doing an in-person event? Yeah, that's a great question, honestly. Um, and my my brain instantly went to a wedding that we were invited to that was held virtually during the the height of COVID in 2020. Um, we, we dressed up into the nines as if we were there personally. We had a background like we were at a, a ballroom and, um, you know, just to get into it and have fun. And we had our champagne and and all that was good. And we were watching the wedding. And then at the end, they they cut to every single Zoom participant and asked them to share their screen and say a few words to the bride and groom. And, and that's what we've talked about. That's that's a testimony right there, right? So we each got our chance to say a few things and have cheers with them. And they, you know, tears were flowing and it was really great. And we got to see old friends too, even though we weren't there in person. So absolutely, there's room for that. Um, you need to make sure you understand the technology that you're using to host the event. Uh, this was, like I said, done via Zoom. And there were a few technical glitches. Um, so, you know, as long as you do your uh, research and make sure you know the tech, um, if you have a tech team to help you with that, I'm sure that would make things go a lot smoother. Again, this was a wedding, so it was just the uncle uh, that was in charge of things. So, yeah, I think um, if you can uh, arrange for that, all the better. I think if it'd be more, it would be prudent to make sure that you identify who you want these testimonies to come from versus asking every single person, especially if you're having thousands of people attend a conference virtually. So targeting your 10 best customer stories that you want to capture, asking them like, hey, since you're with us this week, can we capture you virtually uh, via Zoom or whatever tech median? And uh, here's the questions we would like to ask you beforehand. Is that okay? And then obviously get them to sign a, a, a piece of paper that will allow you to take that content to create some sort of video um, piece. I think then you're just going through the motions as uh, more traditional uh, testimony videos are captured, right? So I think there's room for it. You just gotta you gotta be very conscientious about what you're doing, why, and how um, mm. when you're when you're handling it via virtually. Yeah, it's so true, and you know, still it's, that's such a great reminder that like you can still use the excitement and the emotion of the event, mm. and even you know, as a reason to ask and. Uh, just because it's not in person doesn't mean you still can't, you know, capture um, those those customer videos. You mentioned video references, uh, which I think is is incredibly powerful because you know of, of a lot of reasons. One, it, I'm sure it works really well, but I, and I want to hear from, more from you about that. 
Uh, and then also like, you know, preventing reference burnout, right? Which is a constant mm. concern. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit more. It sounds like, you know, what you've been able to do is sort of understand what the common kind of, you know, questions, fears, and doubts that you get asked are, in, in, you know, at that stage in the buyer journey and basically, you know, create, you know, a series of, of um, you know, videos or longer, you know, vi chaptered videos to, to address that. And um, mm -hmm. I think, which honestly sounds like such a good strategy, you know, but uh, I'd love to hear you. Yeah, tell me, tell us more, like, how is that working? Uh, what have you found? Have you been able to effectively kind of, you know, deflect a lot of those reference asks and still kind of, you know, win deals? Like, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, like you said, you got to do your research. You got to understand what the common questions are. Um, feel free to ask sales, you know, experienced salesmen and women what they typically see. Um, it helps too in that when I manage my program, I ask the prospects usually to the prospective customers to provide the questions that they want to ask our advocates before the call. And I would put those on a briefing document for the advocate to give them context into the conversation. They don't always provide the questions and that's fine, but if they do, great. Um, it just maximizes the time with the advocate. And that that allowed me to take a look and at some of those briefing documents and see, okay, here's the common questions we get. You can also kind of just, uh, if you know your product and you know your um, buyers, you should be able to come up with those yourself too, if, you, if this, what I've described isn't uh, available to you. Um, and then you, yeah, just like you said, probably you're those that get asked for the most. So your biggest, most appealing customers, whatever they might be, um, the Nikes of the world, for example, um, just to name one very well-known company, those would be the ones that you want to get that piece of content from. Maybe not everybody, uh, but you could also think of it in other ways. Like the, the one story that you keep going to, maybe they're not asked for all the time, but you know that they're just the best advocate and they always have the best answers and they win, they help you win the most deals and you really don't want to burn them out. That's another way of thinking about who should I ask to do this? And they'll probably appreciate like, hey, do this one more time for me and I'll never ask you again because uh, I'll have this uh, uh, on file, right? And they'll probably understand why you're coming, where you're coming from there. Um, and then, yeah, so feel free to share those with the sales team. Let them know like, this is not for you to put on social media. This is not for you to blast out early in the stage. This is for you to use when you're asked for a reference. And before you place a reference request to me and my desk, put this in front of them, let them see it. If they have any further questions, then we can go through the process and address it. And it's, it, you can measure that, like the consumption of those videos, and you can see how well they are um, working. It, it's a bit more manual that way, but you can kind of get a sense for like, okay, was this exercise even worth it? If so, do it five, six more times with others, right? So one for each product or one for each industry. I think there's, when, when it gets to the point where I have additional questions, you're typically not going to that same person that filmed the videos. You're typically going to somebody uh, and that can answer those questions, those specific questions. And when you've done it that way, it's really helpful because now you know exactly what is top of mind for the prospective customer. What's these like last few hangups that they have. And you can really hone in on who you ask to take that reference call and you can prep them very specifically to address those things. And it makes that call all the more worthwhile, right? So, and it doesn't take a lot of time to share a video link and say, hey, I know you want references. Here's one that's been pre-recorded. Let me know if this suffices or if you want something else, right? It's, it's easy to do and um, well worth the effort, I'd say. And then, um, yeah, you can just take that forward and, and apply that to the others. And hopefully it alleviates some of the stress on the advocates because it's not their day job to work for you and answer questions, right? Yeah, I love that. And like, it's true, 
you know, it's, it's such a good way to, to, it's like scaling out your best advocates, right? <laughs> Instead of, you know, burning them out, uh, you can just scale, you know, get it once, get it, bank it. And then, you know, probably 90% of the time that, you know, recorded reference call is going to work. Because like you said, like most customers have a lot of the same questions at the, or most prospects have a lot of the same questions at the end of the day. Yeah. I like what you said though. Instead of burnout, scale out. I like that. Mm. And, and, you know, you got to be ready because some prospects are never going to take a video call. They're just not like, it's yeah. a, they're a bigger company themselves. They got an RFP team, a purchasing team, procurement team, that's the word, uh, that's very specific and very um, into their job and they want to do it right. That's fair. Um, just, you know, I think it's helpful to have this option for some of those faster moving deals because those do exist. It's like, man, we need something now. Like, I don't want to wait up on my procurement team. I know what I need. I know what I want, but I want to make sure that I'm not stepping into something here. Um, I have a deadline to meet, right? So those are where, you know, do you want a reference call in two days? I don't think that's going to happen, but here's some videos. You know what I mean? Like here's, here's typical reference questions answered by the advocates who, if they were available in the next two days, would answer these in the same way. Right. So you can use it that way. Right. Especially at the end of a year during Christmas, it's like, well, so-and-so is out for the next two weeks and you need to get this reference call done. Um, this is a great option. Makes so much sense. And an another thing we were talking about um, around this topic in the pre-show, just kind of like, creative and you know forward thinking ways some of the best customer advocacy teams are are leveraging video um one of the things that you know we, we kind of hit on was like this kind of mindset shift where maybe you know the status quo you know especially a couple of years ago was you know really having the, these more monolithic pieces of content whether it was like a monolithic written case study or a monolithic mm -hmm. you know corporate you know, video testimonial kind of commercial where that, you know, that was maybe the, and honestly still is the status quo. And now, mm -hmm. but like, you know, we're shifting to uh, more of this, you know, um, you know, taking that, those, you know, monolithic things and kind of atomizing them, creating micro content throughout mm -hmm. the buyer journey, because in the reality is like, customer voice is, um, and that, like you said earlier, authentic customer voice is, isn't just something that needs to be sort of relegated to a, a certain point, you know, at the end of the funnel. I'd be curious to think of like, how has your, how has your thinking there sort of evolved in, in terms of, uh, I, I suppose, just this kind of shift from like that, like single monolithic, you know, mm. you know, piece to the, this more, you know, micro content, full funnel customer yeah. voice approach. Yeah, it's, it's been reactionary. Um, this team, the customer marketing, customer advocacy teams usually uh, are here to service other parts of the organization to do their job, uh, whether that's sales or, or marketing. So as marketing as shifts to ABM account-based marketing, right? As, as they focus more on specific industries, which is what we're seeing a lot more of is like, how does this product apply to this industry specifically? Um, the results are that, that, I can't do a three minute corporate commercial for a customer five different ways. You just can't, right? So once it's made, it's made. You're not gonna, you're likely, I should say, I shouldn't speak in absolutes. You're likely not gonna send another video crew out there a year later to catch that story again, just to ask one question about uh, a specific industry, right? Or a specific feature or whatever it might be, right? So um, unless you've covered all your bases and you still have that content to, to re-edit the video specific to that, that topic, 
you're forced to think about other ways to do that. So, and I love that you brought up case studies too, because case studies have become shorter as well. Um, but yeah, so my point was that we're reacting to the marketing team's shift in strategy to make things very personalized, very specific to the audience, whatever they might be. So the best way to do that is to leverage what we all have now is our phones and cameras all over. I could count one, two, three, four different cameras that could capture my image right now if I wanted them to. So um, everybody has this in their office. Everybody's in their office at home all the time now because of COVID. So capitalize on that, make it easy for them to provide this short form content and and you can ask them whatever question you like at any time um, and, and say, hey, uh, you did a great job last month answering these five questions. Now I'd love you to let us let the audience know what you're looking forward to in Accelerate 2022. You know, you attended last year, you spoke last year. Um, we'd love to include your voice on our invitations for this year's event. And so five minutes, doom, bump, done. And you got this piece of content that now you can use for event marketing, right? Um, or, or, you know, it. what's your... You know, if you keep it short and sweet and recurring, it's like, well, what, what's top of mind for you this month as you look into year-end planning? Um, you know, what, how are you using PlanView to uh, uh, strategize initiatives for 2022? You know, and then that that's now you have a campaign for January of 2022 about the year ahead and, and that ties to our differentiator strategic program management, right? So you can get real creative with this um, once you've kind of shifted away from this, okay, we need one video from the, about this one customer to we need lots of videos about this one topic from as many different customers as we can get. And, you know, it's it's a shift because of technology. It's a shift because of the demands of the marketing team and the sales team. Um, it's also a shift due to the climate of, of COVID. Um, and and the what I see as a permanent shift in how people do work. And again, technology enabled um, to do work from anywhere and most likely from home. So. Yeah, that's uh, kind of a long-winded answer, and I think for the most part you'd agree. But um, I'm not sure if you if you see some of these same things or if you have a take on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and I think the other thing I would add is like the great thing with video is it's sort of like the the master medium, right? You can take your mm. video, you can you know transcribe it, you can you know use that in your written case studies, uh, you can use it in you know slides in, in your you know in your decks, but it's not, it's like, doesn't really work the opposite way. You can't necessarily right. take a, <laughs> a written case study and turn it into a very authentic video, you know? Great um, point. Great yeah. So I think like that to me also speaks to like why video, why the best kind of customer advocacy and customer marketing teams have are, you know, using video more is because it's just, um, you have so much optionality and you get like you get everything if you if you do video, you can mm -hmm. always have the option to, to you know pull the transcript and such, or just the audio for that point, That's or just the point. audio, yeah, hundred percent, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think um, what also came to mind was uh, even the online review sites like G Two Crowd are taking video ref reviews instead of text reviews. Uh, visitors can leave a, a recording, and we've had a few customers do that, and it, you just see this shift in general, like. Again, technology didn't allow for this 10 years ago. This remote capture and, and transfer of video content is just the storage and, and the, the bandwidth issues. But now those are no longer a problem. And so we see this video is more prolific than ever as a result. And you mentioned G2. I know you have a, you know, you and your team, you have a basically a multi-site strategy. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. You know, you know, what have you sort of learned? What has been your biggest learning? you know, on the, on the review side and, you know, mm -hmm. as it pertains to having, 
a multi-site, you know, review strategy and just making, what do you think is important uh, to just kind of make it work or what is the most interesting thing you know, you've learned? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a learning experience for me too, now that I'm at PlanView because at Aptis and then at Clarizen, uh, we both had, well, Aptis had multiple products, so it wasn't such a thing, but especially with Clarizen, we had one product for the most part. Um, again, I'm, I'm generalizing a bit, but we had one product and it made it easy to have a multi-site pro- uh, strategy for that one product. Now that I'm at PlanView, we have a whole suite of products that really wrap into a platform. And so this, this has made it really trickier in having a multi-site strategy because do you pay for a paid profile on all four major online review sites for every single product? Does that make sense? Um, these are the questions we had to ask ourselves. Or do you pick some products on some sites based on the visitation uh, statistics of those sites? Or maybe not, don't think about visitation or who, who's going to those sites, but think about, well, wh- how are you going to use the content from each site in your campaigns? Does that affect the way you uh, or how, which products you pay, pay for the profiles on those sites? So we looked at all those. We looked at how we were positioned on those sites today and where we needed improvements or where we're really strong. And that kind of affected our decisions as well. I think every company needs to have a multi-site online review strategy these days. You can't afford to not do that because people are on all of these. There's none, none of these four major sites being Gartner Peer Insights, PeerSpot, which was IT Central Station, uh, Trust Radius, and G2 Crowd, right? Those are the four that we work with, heavily work with. Because people are going to all those. So if you're ignoring one, you're ignoring a huge chunk of visitors. And if your profiles are languishing there, it's going to hurt you and you're never going to realize it. And that's the worst kind of hurt. So um, that's why we took that approach. And my idea as I build 2022 is to automate the collection of reviews. And it's tricky when you have multiple products on each site because you can't just have one link, leave a review. So what we're doing to fix that is we're going to create a dedicated landing page called the Review Hub, Online Review Hub. And then there, that's how we're gonna inject those into PowerPoint slides for events, put those in email signatures for the company, um, put that on social media. And and that's gonna be where we point everybody to that becomes our one destination link. Once they're there, the visitors can select the product that they wanna leave a review on. And then there'll be a drop-down menu. It's like, okay, I wanna leave a review on PlanView Clarison on Gartner. And uh, maybe the next month is like, well, I left one on Gartner. I wanna leave a review of PlanView Clarison on G2 Crowd now. And it's like, okay, now I'm ready to leave a review of PlanView's E1 product and, and they're pointing me to PeerSpot or Gartner, right? So that, that hub will allow us to broaden and easily use one destination, but also pointing everybody to the right place and hopefully a, a concise manner. So we still have to design it. That's kind of my, my vision for it. In the next couple of weeks, we'll see that come to fruition. But yeah, that's my, my way of automating the collection of reviews and think about as many touch points as you can it's every time there's a survey that's going out, an NPS survey, if anyone gives a positive response to that, you want to point them to leave a review. You want to prompt them to leave a review. Uh, anytime there's a support case is filed and closed effectively, that's a survey goes out after that. And, and again, any eight, nines or tens should be asked to leave a review. Um, any newsletters you have planned, think about that as a, a way, a customer newsletter is a great way to solicit online reviews. So uh, my plan here is to automate and find as many touch points as possible so that I'm not relying on a big email blast in the middle or the end of the year. And the reason you don't want that is because you're going to get a, you might get a good spike and great, we did it. But then suddenly a year or two years later, whatever the review site's policy is, that spike is going to disappear and you're 
those reviews time out eventually. That's typically what those review sites, uh, the practice that they do, right? So in order to make sure that you never have this spike and then trough, you want a steady uptick. You want a steady hill climb kind of effect. And so that's that's my strategy there. And um, I've employed that at other companies and looking forward to employing it here at PlanView as well. And that'll hopefully keep us at the top and suddenly not have a big drop off on reviews. Yeah, that I love that. And um, we'll try to get that uh, landing page linked up maybe in the show notes so folks can perhaps uh, you know check that out for inspiration. Last thing I wanted to um, ask you about, James, I know that uh, you've built out a very you know robust um, customer marketing dashboard in, in Salesforce. Tell me a little bit about that. What are you tracking? Why are you tracking what you're tracking? Hmm. And and what are, you know, in terms of what you're tracking, what are some of the kind of like metrics or indicators that that you're that you're looking to see? Yeah. Um, so I try to think about, again, the audience, much like these videos, you want to think about, OK, who are these metrics and dashboards for? Certainly yourself. Um, so I, I started with the easy ones like, what do I need to know to run my program better? I need to know how many program members I have at any given time. And I take snapshots of that so that I can uh, report at the end of the year that this is the growth that we've had. So program members by individuals and then program members by uh, accounts are the simple things you can do and easily add fields to Salesforce or any CRM to do that. Then you think about the next level is like, okay, what's the impact that these program members are having on our business? So next, probably the next easiest one to do is an opportunity field Salesforce opportunity field to indicate whether references were requested and completed or not. And once you have that field in place and you are updating that or the sales team, having the sales team update that, and it's great, great practice to work with sales operations to make sure that that field itself is a stage gate before they can close any deal. So I want to close when this, I need to indicate whether a call happened or not, right? before I can proceed. And that way, you know, your fields are accurate. So that's a nice little tip there. Once you have that field, you can run a report on, okay, all closed opportunities uh, in Q4 of 2021, how many of those had that, that box ticked? And so you say, okay, our reference program affected X percent of all new business. And then you can run a report this current quarter, how many open opportunities yet to close this quarter have requested references. And that's a really cool report for sales leaders because they can see like, well, uh, if I'm projecting to close a certain number of deals this quarter, but none of them are requested references, are these really going to close this quarter? Is this actually a healthy pipeline? And there's a lot of different ways you can measure healthy pipeline, but this is just one more that I think is pretty interesting. And certainly for uh, the AEs, the account executives themselves, they can take a look at all their open ops and they can say, oh, I, I should think about references if I'm expecting this to close. Or as they go to their QBRs, they can point out like, well, I, I do feel that this will close because I've done all these things, including references. I've got my NDA, I've got my MSAs in their hands and all this other stuff that they need to worry about. So it's just one of many, many different things. But if you're not tracking it, you can't report on it. So get going on adding those fields and make sure to take a snapshot after every quarter because the problem is unless you add more reports in that dashboard for each quarter, you you lose what it was, if that makes sense. And certainly a volume metric of number of program members, if you're not taking a snapshot and marking that down at this date, I had 300, then I have 400. It's impossible for you to retroactively go back unless you add more fields and more layers to that existing field about when it was updated last and it gets a little hairy, right? So next I'd say my field on the account record 
this is really important if you're not thinking about it. It shouldn't just be a program member or not program member. It should be a pick list of different options. And starting with not yet asked, as in we haven't asked them to be a reference. Next is not ready to be asked, as in the CSM has looked at this account and determined that they're not quite ready, but maybe later. Next would be uh, recruiting or in progress, something to indicate that the CSM has asked them, but they haven't been recruited into the program yet. Then there's active. They've been recruited, fully recruited active member. There's suspended, which means it's a temporary status that we use in case health goes south. Maybe they're busy this quarter. Maybe they told us explicitly, uh, I will only do one reference call each quarter and I've used them. Then I'll suspend them till the, the next quarter. That's a good way of us making sure that we don't overburden anybody. Um, or our advocate left the company and we need a new advocate. But I don't want to mark the account as no longer an advocate because the account is very much a program member, but they're suspended from calls because we need to find somebody else there. That makes sense. And last is uh, corporate restriction. So they've de politely declined to be an advocate and they will never be an advocate. It's against the rules at that, that corporation. So you hopefully those are very few and far in between, but they do exist and you need to track it. And all this is to say, when you get this full picture of not just how many accounts in our customer base are advocates, but how many of our advocate customers, you know, where what's the status there? You can tee that up to the CSM team and they can run their reports and say, well, how healthy is our, our business, our, our book of business really when only 20% of our customers are advocates? We want that to be 50%. And so you got to work with sales leaders to make sure you understand what data they need and that'll help impact how you run your reports and what data you collect. And similarly with the CSM team, you gotta be really close partners with them because if the CSM team is paying attention to this, they're gonna wanna fix it. They're gonna wanna improve those numbers. And if they wanna improve those numbers, that's more nominations into your program. And that's easier for you to find and, and facilitate reference requests and create more videos and everything that you need to do to run a healthy program. So make good friends with your uh, CS ops and your leaders of the CS team because uh, it's going to make your job a whole lot easier. That's that's awesome. That's so many good actionable tips and takeaways there. And so so you, for you guys, you target fifty percent. Is that correct? Is that like your like your 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 goal is like we want fifty percent of our customer population to be in some level of you know advocate. Yeah, uh, fifty percent of our named accounts, so those with the CSM. And um, I'm lucky enough to work with the team that has a variable compensation to recruit advocates and have advocates in the program. Not every company does this, um, but it it certainly helps. And when CSMs are incentivized in that way to drive new advocate nominations, right? So that, that's awesome. There's so many questions. More I want to ask about that, but we're out of time. Um, maybe we'll have to do a round two sometime, James. Yeah, happy to. <laughs> yeah, this is this has been awesome. Where can uh, folks uh, connect with you or get in touch if they want to um, connect with you or learn more? I'd say LinkedIn, James Lustenotter. I think I'm well. My uncle might be on there. I'm named after him, but uh, it should be easy enough to find working at PlanView. And feel free to reach out, connect, and um, I'm always excited to meet and discuss, talk shop with others. So. Awesome. This has been great, James. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me, Sam. I had a great time. Alrighty, folks. That was another awesome episode of the State of Customer Storytelling podcast brought to you by Testimonial Hero. Uh, so many great takeaways in that. Uh, we're running out of time, so I don't can't recap them all. But just that bit at the end, especially with James breaking down the whole way that they are tracking everything in Salesforce, so valuable. Uh, early on, so many great takeaways for you know, video, video at conferences, uh, multi-site reviews, 
the importance of authentic voice of the customer. Uh, amazing, great stuff. Make sure and connect with James if you want to chat with any of this stuff more with him. And until then, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>